Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world, produced on Wurundjeri country in Melbourne and broadcast across this continent via the Community Radio Network. I'm Elsie Kennedy. This week, I'm taking on a trip to Antarctica, where Australia is planning a big development. It would be fair to describe that this will have the biggest footprint or impact of any single project in Antarctic history. That's Sean Brooks, a researcher at the University of Tasmania. We'll be hearing more about what Australia has planned later in the show. But first up, a little bit of background. Because in all the awfulness of 2020, you might have missed the fact that this year is the 200th anniversary of the first sighting of Antarctica. I'll be speaking to Antarctic historian and author of Frozen Empires, Adrian Hawkins, about whether there's any precedent for big developments in Antarctica, like what Australia is planning. I'll also speak to Rachel Lee from Monash University about her research into the cumulative impact of humans on the continent over the last 200 years. On the way home, we're going to stop in on a campaign to protect sections of the Southern Ocean around Antarctica. I'll be speaking to Andrea Kavanagh, Director of Southern Oceans Conservation at the Pew Charitable Trusts, about why Russia and China are holding out on a commitment from almost a decade ago to protect sections of the Southern Ocean. Sean Brooks has been to all three of Australia's stations in Antarctica, Davis, Casey and Mawson. First up, I asked him to describe what it's like there. So the continent is quite large, it's quite um, bigger than Australia. So all three of Australia's Antarctic stations are all um, directly on the coast and on um, ice-free areas. So ice-free areas are uh, incredibly scarce Um, in Antarctica. They only make up less than half a percent of the entire land area. They're scattered in these little islands, particularly around the coast, throughout the continent and some of the inland mountains. Um, but it's, it's traditionally where the majority of stations are, um, ours included. And so obviously much easier to, um, to build on kind of rock or, uh, gravel ground versus, um, on top of ice. Um, but the narrow margins around the coast, uh, are by far the most important for both wildlife, um, for say penguins, it's the only area that they can access. They come from the water for feeding. They can't walk that far inland, so that coastal margin is really important. And it's also the most um, damp environments, and so that's where you get kind of um, on in East Antarctica the the mosses and lichens growing, and then on the Antarctic Peninsula the the grass and cushion plant that you find there. So it's the most important around the coastline for um, vegetation and wildlife. We're going to talk about the big development Australia is planning in a minute, but first of all, I asked Sean about Australia's track record an environmental legacy in Antarctica. The um, history of kind of the contemporary station sites in, in Antarctica date back to 1904. The backstory uh, is quite complicated, so I'm going to summarise it a little bit here. Sean said coming out of World War II, a lot of countries had more ships and infrastructure than they did before. And one of the ways they put that to use was sending them down on expeditions to Antarctica. In an attempt to claim land on the continent, countries set up scientific research stations. And during the geopolitical tensions of the Cold War era, a lot of countries built new stations. 
When the Antarctic Treaty was signed in 1959, the geopolitical tensions eased and some of the stations were abandoned, leaving a dangerous environmental legacy. One of the examples of that is Wilkes. It's just across the bay from Australia's Casey Station. The US had initially uh, set the station up, but then after the IGY handed it across to Australia for, for operations, and uh, Australia took it, I presume, because it was of a strategic interest to us. It's the closest station that we have to Australia. The station was, um, was built in a really poor spot. It was a bit of a hollow that when the US arrived um, was free of snow, but that's extremely rare. And so the station is typically buried in snow on any other typical season. And um, Australia liked the location, but the station was dangerous. So they built the new Casey station across the bay um, from Wilkes. And effectively just walked away from Wilkes, um, leaving it, kind of it and all its materials, all its oils, fuel and contamination just, just in situ. And so there haven't been any substantial or significant efforts to clean that up. Um, quite a lot of research into it, but no actual cleanup effort. And so it, it's just been, just been left there. And so because it's covered in snow and ice most of the time, um, a lot of that contamination is, is locked up, which is really convenient. Um, but there is still, when there's big melt years, there is still contamination that leaches down into the coastline. And I've heard reports of um, kind of slicks or sheens of petroleum um, products on the, on the bay there across from Casey. This is only gonna, this is only gonna become more significant with time with um, a warming climate in Antarctica. Uh, there's going to be more melt years and um, yeah, more likely to kind of release um, that contamination. So a bit of a ticking time bomb. That's for, a, that's for an abandoned site. Um, many of our kind of active and current stations also have significant contamination issues. Um, practices in the past in Antarctica certainly reflected less environmental awareness and um, dumping of waste, um, spilling of fuel was quite, quite common. Um, having kind of um, rubbish dumps was, a, was also a common practice between the stations. And so they've now left a, a legacy um, under the kind of the Antarctic Treaty system and the environmental protocol um, to the Antarctic Treaty. Uh, Antarctic nations are um, required to clean up those sites as long as they don't cause more damage uh, in the process of cleaning them up. Uh, Australia has been a, a leader in cleaning up contaminated sites and so we've now developed the technology and the know-how to clean up um, these contaminated sites. We now just need kind of the resourcing to be able to um, tackle them. There's also, in addition to kind of hydrocarbon contamination and other waste, there's also sewage discharged from the stations. Uh, at, at Davis, uh, the uh, wastewater treatment plant had recently been um, replaced because it was the previous system was found to be kind of affecting uh, the marine environment and fish in particular. Um, but the similar systems to what was at Davis in the past is still present at um, Casey and Lawson. And so that's, that's effectively sewage is macerated. So it's mulched up and then pumped directly into the pristine marine environment um, adjacent to the stations. And so these, these sorts of contamination and, and waste issues are um, aren't unique to Australia, are common for uh, all stations across Antarctica, especially ones built more than 30 years ago, which most of them were. Adrian Hawkins, author of a book called Frozen Empires, An Environmental History of the Antarctic Peninsula, 
told me that throughout Antarctica's history, countries have used scientific research as a way to claim land on the continent. That was something that I came across as I was looking at the, the history of, um, so the, the Antarctic Peninsula is disputed, the, the ownership of the Antarctic um, Peninsula is disputed among Britain, Argentina, and Chile. And it raises the question of, of how, do you, how do you claim territory in Antarctica? What are some of the, the sort of the, the traditional ways of claiming territory um, in international law? You, you effectively occupy a region, you have a population living there, you, you govern that population, and then over time, it sort of that, that sense of ownership is established and comes to be recognized internationally. Antarctica is a, because of the environment and the difficulty of living there, um, these sort of traditional markers of sovereignty are, are more difficult, not impossible, but more difficult to, to demonstrate. So one of the things I found in the, in the disputes in the Antarctic Peninsula was that the British were very keen on using science and the production of what they described as sort of useful knowledge to make their, make their claim that particularly in the early days of the, or the early 20th century, the British were saying that our research in and around the Antarctic Peninsula region is helping to make the, the whaling industry sustainable. And if the whaling industry is sustainable, that's good for everyone in the world. We, we know that, of course, didn't happen for a number of reasons. Um, but that was sort of one of the, the ways that the British were, were making their case for, for sovereignty, was, was using science. Argentina and Chile had many other different, um, different ways. It was much more about proximity, geological connection, um, historical rights um, in the 1970s and 1980s. But I would argue that it was the the sort of the connection between science and sovereignty that really was enshrined by the Antarctic Treaty. So to become a member of the Antarctic, or to become a consultative member of the Antarctic Treaty, you have to be doing science, substantial scientific research in the Antarctic to, to become a consultative member. So this very explicit connection between the science and the politics. And then that, I think, particularly in sort of modern Antarctic history, so post-Antarctic um, Treaty, Environmental protection has become one of the ways of putting science into, into practice. And so it's become politically beneficial, and I think in a, in a good way, I, I wouldn't dispute this, but for countries to, to say, we want to protect this, this particular part of the, the territory or um, creating Antarctic specially managed areas, asthmas, and Antarctic specially protected areas, ASPAs, that putting forward proposals to protect the environment is is a positive in itself but it also shows that you care about this territory and have a stake in it and um have a sort of a sense of belonging and perhaps ownership as well so you often see that these asthmas and aspers are being put forward by the same countries that claim territorial sovereignty over those particular parts of, of antarctica Jumping back to Australia's current development plans, what Australia says it wants to do is increase the convenience of access to its scientific research stations by building the largest ice-free runway ever built in Antarctica. I asked Sean Brooks what he thought about that. Well, I certainly believe kind of from the scale of this project that it, um, the motivations behind it can't be justified by science alone. It would certainly be a kind of a, an enormous and unprecedented project um, purely on the basis of science. But then within the, the government's own documentations, 
Um, they do specifically state that um, presence and influence are motivating um, factors for the um, creation of the runway. Um, and so that it's within the Australian Antarctic Territory and it certainly would have a, you know, a substantial presence being the largest um, ice-free runway uh, ever built in Antarctica. What kind of effects do you think this project could have on, on the environment? The, um, the airstrip itself is uh, similar in size to the um, airport in Hobart for um, any listeners that are familiar with that. Uh, and so the, the described disturbance footprint that extends out beyond just that kind of that runway or the additional infrastructure and roads that will go with that um, is estimated to be 2.2 million square metres um, of, of new disturbed area within the Vestfold Hills. And so that's, that's, that's really significant. That's a 40% increase in the disturbance footprint that we have across the entire continent by, you know, by all countries active in Antarctica. So that would position Australia as having the, the most impact um, on ice-free areas of any country in Antarctica. And so it would be fair to describe that this, is the, this will have the biggest footprint or impact of any single project in Antarctic history. And then beyond that immediate um, disturbance footprint from the runway, there will be kind of further um, reaching impacts to be aware of. So the proposal is to have kind of large C-17 Globemaster aircraft flying in and out of the runway. They'll be inevitably flying in um, low as they kind of approach and um, take off from the runway that will be kind of within pretty close proximity to um, the breeding areas of penguins and seals uh, in the surrounding coastlines of the Vestfold Hills. This is pretty significant because aircraft are known to have detrimental impact on Antarctic wildlife and as a consequence, very strict rules apply for flyovers by any aircraft, um, even drones, uh, let alone kind of large military aircraft. Um, on the sub-Antarctic Macquarie Island where we also have a station uh, in 1990, a low-flying Hercules that had done a, a airdrop of mail had then flown past at low altitude past a king penguin colony and 5,000 king penguins had found to have died from a stampede following that low, low flyover. So it is something that we should be quite concerned about. 5,000 king penguins. Yes. That would be a hideous thing to find. Um. Yes, yeah, there's kind of reports in the scientific literature. I think it was the ranger that had, had gone down to that site and it certainly would have been a fairly grisly site to find. What kind of species are there around the Vestfold Hills? So the, the Vestfold Hills are particularly important for um, breeding wildlife in particular. And so within the area, uh, breeding colonies of southern giant petrels are present. Uh, a daily penguins, and that's a, um, a particularly important one from BirdLife International. They have listed eight kind of um, important bird areas, they're called, um, of a daily penguin breeding colonies uh, within the region. Um, Wilson storm petrels, they nest kind of throughout the Vestfold Hills and within the site of the proposed runway in particular. Um, South Polar skewers, Cape petrels, snow petrels, and Weddell seals all breed within the immediate area. And then there's many more of the kind of the typical Antarctic species that are present that don't breed there. So southern elephant seals, for example, um, haul out um, quite near the station. 
um, during the summer, but they yeah, aren't actually breeding um, at the site. Obviously, there's not much space for housing people at a station like Davis. So where will the construction workers be living and what kind of impact will that have on, on scientists that need to use the station? So the investigations for um, this runway have been already underway for uh, approximately five years looking into it. Um, and from my experience, the access to the continent has already been quite restricted uh, and less less uh, positioned less berths for scientists to get down to the station because they've already been um, substantially occupied by surveyors and kind of geotechnical engineers um, and also biologists doing kind of the baseline monitoring to inform the um, assessment documents required. Um, so certainly there's already been a um, kind of an impact on access for science. Um, all the documentation says that this proposed runway isn't forecast to open till at least 2040. Um, and just with the scale of the of the runway, it's going to require a really substantial um, increase in the in the workforce present down there, the amount of um, people working on construction. That, as it stands, is already going to require a significant increase in kind of the beds on station. Um, and I think that's already acknowledged that um, during construction that um, scientists will be kind of displaced um, by kind of the construction workers um, at Davis in particular. Um, I think it would probably also flow on to impacts to Casey and Morstan as well because uh, there's going to be a, a lot more shipping for materials going from kind of Hobart to, to Davis and that's also going to restrict um, the availability of the ship um, and therefore best for scientists to get to the other stations. Sean says once the runway is built, it will make accessing Davis Station more convenient and that could have benefits for scientific research. But he says there are better alternatives. I think it deserves a high level of public scrutiny um, for us having such a large impact. I think there should be genuine consideration of of other alternatives, which I don't think have been reasonably considered. So the US program, um, for example, is probably about 10 times the size of Australia's Antarctic program. And they base their operations on LC-130 Hercules aircraft. And so these are um, operated by the US um, Coast Guard, I believe. And they take off um, on wheels from Christchurch and fly down to McMurdo Station and land on skis. So they have the option of taking off on, on wheels or skis. And so their, their entire program, which is probably 10 times the size of the Australian program, has kind of tested and proven the use of these aircraft. And that's really the backbone of their operations. That was environmental researcher at the University of Tasmania, Sean Brooks. We also heard from Adrian Hawkins, environmental historian and author of Frozen Empires, an environmental history of the Antarctic Peninsula. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Today we're visiting Antarctica. We're talking about Australia's plans for the biggest development in Antarctic history. And on the 200th anniversary of the first sighting of Antarctica, we're taking a bit of a look back at what impacts humans have had on the continent. Next up, I asked Adrian Hauken if there's any precedent for what Australia is planning to do. The 19, in 1991, um, the members of the Antarctic Treaty signed the Madrid Protocol, um, which is often called the, the, environmental pro the Environmental Protocol to the Antarctic Treaty, um, which created a Committee for Environmental Protection um, 
And that then is the sort of the, the focal point for discussions about environmental disturbance. Um, and so this will be being discussed by this, uh, this committee for environmental protection. As a historian, I would say that if, if a country really wants to do something, they tend to do that. Um, they, they get their way um, because they, they're ultimately the country that can take the, the good, the um, materials down to, to do the construction and different things like, um, like that. And there's very little that the community can do, the international Antarctic Treaty can do is, is sort of to, to sanction or to stop those sort of activities. But it is very much negotiated. It's, um, I think there is a sort of the idea of environmental prestige does play quite an important role in the way that Antarctica is governed and, and operates that countries don't want to be seen as the sort of the, the pariah, the, the country that is doing, um, doing bad things environmentally. And I was curious about just how much of Antarctica has been affected by people over the last 200 years. So I called up Rachel Lee, who's just finished a PhD in conservation biology at Monash University. So we did uh, an extensive literature search, essentially, looking at, through uh, published records, databases, records of historical expeditions like traverses across Antarctica, uh, records of scientific sampling sites, and we collected a data set of about 2.7 million records of human activity spanning from 1819 to 2018. And we were really surprised at how much of the continent's been visited. Rachel said these unvisited areas are really important to provide an environmental baseline for other parts of the continent but she was surprised to find that those areas make up less than 32% of Antarctica. I asked her what we need to do to protect Antarctica's remaining wilderness areas. So the best way to protect Antarctica's remaining wilderness areas would be to include more of those areas in its existing specially protected areas network, or also to increase the consideration of wilderness values in environmental impact assessments when planning out activities. So there are currently 72 protected areas, uh, across the continent, but they don't include many of its um, wilderness values or its most pristine areas. So expanding those protected areas would be a great way to protect more of that. That was Rachel Lee, a conservation biologist who's just finished a PhD at Monash University. We're going to travel a little further north now into the ocean around Antarctica. The Southern Ocean was not included in the Antarctic Treaty because at the time of the, the signing of the treaty, at the height of the Cold War, no one really thought that we could harm the ocean, that we didn't need to do anything to regulate what was happening in the ocean. I spoke to Andrea Kavanagh, Director of Southern Ocean Conservation at the Pew Charitable Trust in Canada. Well, the Southern Ocean is the world's southernmost body of water. It completely surrounds the continent of Antarctica. It teems with life. It is one of the um, coldest, driest, windiest, and iciest places on Earth. Um, the conditions are incredibly harsh, but it stores the majority of the world's fresh water. It regulates our climate and it drives global ocean circulation. Uh, it's an important and amazing part of the world. In the early 1980s, when countries realised that krill fishing in the Southern Ocean was getting out of control, they formed an organisation called CAMELA, which is responsible for the conservation of the Southern Ocean. And so CAMELA has made some quite impressive commitments to protecting 
large areas of the Southern Ocean. What are those commitments and, and which of them, what, what is it actually acted on? So when it comes to marine protected areas, CAMELAR was ahead of its time. And in 2002, it was the very first international body that committed to creating a network of marine protected areas. And then nine years later, in 2011, those same governments agreed to a conservation measure for creating an actual network of marine protected areas. And they also identified nine areas all around the continent um, that were especially in need of protection. But the interesting thing when they said they were going to create this network was that they were going to have it all done by 2012. And unfortunately, they're a bit behind on that time schedule. So why is Camelot so behind schedule? And who's responsible ultimately for making sure these marine parks happen? Camelot itself doesn't put together proposals, but the member governments do. So for example, this year at Camelot, we will have three marine protected area proposals that we're discussing, one in East Antarctica, one in the Weddell Sea, and one in the Antarctic Peninsula. The East Antarctic Marine Protected Area proposal is one of the oldest, and it's championed by Australia, the European Union, and France. Um, currently, Russia and China are the two countries that have have been not agreeing to adopt the three proposals. And some of the questions re remain around how we do research and monitoring in the future in those protected areas. At least those are their questions. What, what research and monitoring are Russia and China hoping to be able to do? Well, that, that's actually a question for them. I'm not quite sure what it is that they think is not there. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult to tell sometimes what the the real issue is we hope that this year is the breakthrough year that will bring um, the member countries who have been blocking it on board and what's at stake if they're not brought in this year if they come in more slowly than that or if they don't get accepted well the ecosystem continues to suffer cumulative consequences of human impacts including fishing and climate change one of the other consequences of not getting the marine protected areas in place quickly is that camelar as an organization as a leading ecosystem protecting organization begins to lose credibility that they can't actually get this done they continue to fish but if they can't put the mpas into place they're not fulfilling their original mandate of conservation what can people who are concerned about the Southern Ocean do at this point? Well, one of the most important things that, that uh, people in Australia can do is they can, can, can contact their members of government all the way at the very top, Scott Morrison, Susan Lay, ask them to be working with their counterparts in Russia and China to make this a top priority for Camelar this year. The only way this is going to get done is if um, President Putin in Russia and President Xi in China start hearing directly from um, their counterparts in Australia and France and the European Union about how important this is to them as a country that the Southern Ocean or the, and Antarctica in particular has long been a place where countries can come together despite any geopolitical differences and protect it. That was Andrea Kavanagh. Director of Southern Ocean Conservation at the Pew Charitable Trusts. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Community Radio's National Environmental Justice Program. I'm Elsie Kennedy. If you missed any of today's show, you can find our podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Or if you're listening via iTunes or any other podcasting service, please rate us and leave us a review.
it helps other people find the show. Earthminers would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is normally produced in the studios of 3CR on Wurundjeri Country. This week, as Melbourne's lockdown continues, it came to you from my cupboard, also on Wurundjeri Country. If you'd like to get in contact, you can send us an email at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page. I hope you can tune in next time for more Earth Matters. Finishing up the show today, I'm going to leave you with a bizarre and wonderful sound. It's the sound of an iceberg. Or more accurately, it's two enormous icebergs pushing against each other. <laughs>